Welcome back to our study of the book of Mark. And in this video, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. Now, you've probably noticed up to this point, and you're going to continue to notice in this chapter, that Mark is full of stories that we know. But it's usually not the account that we know, at least if you're like me. You know, I, I tend to know what Matthew says about something, or maybe what Luke says about it. But as far as Mark, I don't know. I think that at least I have overlooked uh, this shorter of the Gospels. But yet, it is so important. And we see that he has a whole lot to tell us. And he tells it to us very, very quickly. He takes up only about half the space as everybody else. But if you are turning to Mark chapter 9 and you're going to follow along in your own Bibles, you may be noticed it kind of starts off with a weird phrase. And it's kind of connected to what we ended with last week. So I'm going to reread that last little paragraph from Mark chapter 8, and then we'll move into Mark 9. So this is the last paragraph from Mark chapter 8. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now we get into chapter 9. Verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, the reason why I wanted to connect that last little bit from the previous chapter is because I think that in order to understand what Jesus is saying, that some of those people that he's talking to, uh, that they are not even going to die before they first see something happen to the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, I'm not pretending to necessarily uh, going to get into a lengthy, detailed explanation for what Jesus is saying right there. But just I, I do want us to keep in mind that what he just stopped talking about, like what he just finished talking about, I don't know that he's really stopped talking about it, but he finished it in the previous chapter, was if you want to be my disciple, this is what you need to do. And he tells them what they need to do in order to be the disciple. But then he also says in verse 38 of the previous chapter that if you are ashamed of Jesus, uh, then also the Son of Man is going to be ashamed of that person. Um, whenever the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So he just kind of finished that. And then he says, he looks out at the crowd and, and then he says, look, some of you who are standing out here right now, you're not going to taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power. Now, I think that what Jesus is really getting at is that the kingdom of God, while it existed in the Old Testament, it exists now in a different way. It exists now in a different way because of what Jesus, our King, did on the cross. Because of that, we saw a certain power that the kingdom of God has, that, that it didn't really have before because now it literally has this power over death, that, you know, not just the death of Jesus, but the hope that we can all uh, be able to have life uh, even after uh, this death, that uh, this death of this life in, in, this, uh, in this body that we currently are in. So this passage here, Jesus is telling those people that something big is coming, something big is happening. I mean, this goes back to the message that Jesus was openly proclaiming from the very beginning of his ministry, that he was calling everybody to repent because the kingdom is at hand. 
But well, now he's saying, look, some of you are not even going to die before you see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, I think that that really is talking a lot about what we see today with the church, because what we see that, that this being part of the church, being part of this kingdom of God, it's such a powerful thing in the world today. And, you know, sometimes we're, we're so used to being within the kingdom, within the church, that sometimes we don't always even realize how great of a thing it is and how powerful a thing it is. But Jesus was telling that to his audience. He wants them to understand that. And in this chapter, we're going to see some of this power that is connected with the kingdom of God. So let's keep reading and let's see some of these passages. Verses 2 through 8. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly. When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, this passage, uh, you know, if you've been kind of following along with our with our sermons or, you know, if you're part of our church and, and watching these videos, then you realize that uh, it wasn't too long ago that we looked at the transfiguration. We kind of noticed some of these things uh, about Jesus himself. Uh, we didn't do that from Mark's gospel. So this is one of those occasions. It's familiar, but yet. Specifically, what Mark tells us is a little different, and we kind of get some interesting details that Mark includes that might be a little different uh, than some of those other details. Uh, like, for example, I think this is a, a beautiful phrase to show the humanity of the disciples that's found in verse 6. Uh, we see that Peter, he speaks up and he says something. You know, Peter is the type of guy who he oftentimes speaks up and he says something. And a lot of times it's something, you know, pretty powerful, pretty, pretty good. But, you know, sometimes it's just kind of like, Peter, what are you thinking at that? But... I guess if we can kind of stand outside of ourselves for a moment, uh, we probably all are kind of like that at some point or another. You know, that, that we could also look and think, well, why did I say that? You know, why did I act like that? Peter probably uh, could do that with his own life. But, you know, sometimes we kind of wonder, why did he say those things? Well, right here we get in verse 6, this statement, once once Peter talks to him, uh, I, love, I love his statement. You know, he, he's trying to take all this in and he says, it's good for us to be here. Yes, Peter, it, it is good for you to be there. It's just a wonderful observation, I think. But then we see in verse 6, it says that he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Have you ever been in a moment like that? That, you know, it's kind of, you know, we might even kind of call it uh, like an awkward moment of silence or something. You just don't know really what to say. In this case, he's frightened. Uh, he's, he's scared. He's seeing something. He doesn't know how to process this stuff. And he's just saying, uh, okay, it's good for us to be here. Okay, uh, should we build the, some, some shelters here? And that wasn't really the right focus. And Jesus kind of talks with him and, and, and he, he starts to, to get this and understand that. But he didn't know what to say at first. And sometimes we might find ourselves in that same situation. Don't be too alarmed about that. Jesus is willing to work with us. I mean, he was willing to work with Peter, so it just makes sense that he'd be willing to work with us too. So sometimes you might not know what to say. Sometimes you might be a little frightened even in your own walk with God. You might be a little uncertain as to what God is doing or what you should be doing. 
just learn from this example and see that Jesus and our Heavenly Father are both very patient with Peter. And we see that, that the Father kind of steps in. And in verse 7, he explains that Jesus, he says, he's my son whom I love. Listen to him. And we see all this focus. Uh, Moses was a great guy. Elijah was a great guy. But right now, look, this is the son of God. Listen to him. And then that's why in verse 8, whenever they, they, uh, they looked around, uh, they didn't see anybody else with him except Jesus. Because Jesus is the focus right here. He's the one that they needed to listen to. He's the one that we need to listen to today. So this is kind of what we see with this transfiguration. It's a wonderful statement where Jesus is, uh, is really kind of being openly proclaimed from, from our Father that he is the Son of God and that he is the loved Son of God and that he needs to be the one that we listen to uh, today. Of course, there's things about this mountain that, you know, you might go back to and, and relate with the lives of Elijah or also the life of Moses. I mean, with Moses, uh, there's a couple of things. I'll just mention these briefly. Uh, with Moses, we see that whenever he went up onto the mountain, if you remember, um, his face was shining because of the glory of God whenever he came down off Mount Sinai. Well, we see a similar type thing going on here with Jesus, only this time it's not just the face of Jesus. It's all of Jesus. He was transfigured before their eyes. And then we also see the, the fact that uh, that it says in verse 7 that Jesus needs to be the one that is listened to. Well, Moses was told there was going to be another prophet that's going to be raised up that's to be like him. Well, we see from the, the New Testament that that prophet was uh, and is Jesus. Jesus is the one that needs to be listened to. So we see in verse 7 all of these, these statements kind of going back to, to Moses and this story. But you know, there's also some, some comparisons to Elijah as well. And also we get even more significance of uh, Elijah being there and uh, kind of the importance of, uh, that he has played. Verses 9 through 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teacher of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and, and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Okay, so let's let's look at a few of these, these uh, phrases right here. In verse 9, uh, we see that Jesus makes a statement. And this is once again one of those times that we see the humanity of the disciples. We are humans just like what they were. And sometimes we don't always understand what's going on, just like they didn't always understand what's going on. Jesus right there, he tells them to be silent until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So he just kind of tells them that, okay? So to us, we're like, the disciples should clearly know that Jesus is going to die and he's going to be raised from the dead, okay? They, they should have no question about that. So he just tells them, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Now, to us and our ministry today, that means, look, we're on the other side of this. We need to be openly and boldly proclaiming these messages. We don't have to be quiet any longer. We don't have to keep the matter quiet. It's not a secret. This secret, this mystery has been revealed. In verse 10, here what we see is uh, they don't get it. Jesus said, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. And in verse 10, they were discussing what rising from the dead they didn't get it. You know, they thought, I guess at least, 
they thought that Jesus was saying one of his, you know, kind of riddles. Maybe this was like a parable. Uh, you know, what does rising from the dead mean? You know, sometimes I think that this is how our conversations go too, though. Uh, and, you know, at least I can see how some of my conversations have gone because sometimes I've picked out different phrases in the Bible, which I thought maybe were really important. But then as I grew, I started to realize, you know, I thought that was really important, but maybe that really wasn't important. In fact, sometimes I think that those phrases that I looked at and, and I really tried to find something, something really important in some certain phrase or try to really figure out exactly this meaning. Sometimes if you just take a step back and you realize, you know, maybe rising from the dead, like in this case, maybe rising from the dead actually just means that the Son of Man was going to rise up from the dead. Now, this is an easy one for us. We're looking at it in hindsight, you know, it's 2020. Of course, we get all these, these statements. We're used to that. They didn't understand that. They didn't have the rest of the story. They were living the story. So they had to discuss what does rising from the dead mean? And I think sometimes our discussions are like that. But I, I want to give you hope, though. Sometimes some of our discussions might not really be all that important in the long run. You know, even the spiritual ones that we have. But I think that's okay. Because I think that there is something about asking the question and dealing with them and trying to understand what God is, is, uh, is telling us about. And here in this case, they didn't quite get it, but that they're going to get a little bit more information. So then whenever they're trying to discuss what does rising from the dead mean, then they just kind of ask this question. Okay, in verse 11, uh, they realize that the teacher law during their day they're saying that Elijah has to come first. Well, what's that about? And what's, what does that mean? Well, Jesus tells them, he says that Elijah does come first and restores all things. And then he actually says that, that Elijah has already come. That's what he says in verse 13. Now, we don't see it here. But if you look, kind of like I said, you know, we're not always used to seeing Mark's gospel account of things. But if you actually look in Matthew's account, we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 17, verse 13, that's maybe if you're taking notes or if you want to write that down or, or turn there, or whatever. Matthew 17, verse 13, we see that Jesus um, is, is pretty plainly saying the same types of things, saying, look, Elijah's already come. And then it says, look, the disciples understood that he wasn't talking about Elijah. He was talking about John the Baptist. That's who he's talking about right here, too. So he's talking about John the Baptist uh, coming and being like what uh, Elijah was. So here, all of these things needed to be fulfilled and all these things were fulfilled. And we see this beautiful story of this transfiguration and the need for us to follow Jesus and for us to listen to Jesus Christ. But there's still quite a few more stories in this chapter. Now let's look at verses 14 through 18. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out, uh, to drive out the spirit but they could not. Verses 19 through 24 now. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. 
He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pause here in the story. Uh, you know, I know I kind of, I've, I've looked through two different slides right here and I've gotten up to this point. But we see several things. We see this very interesting story that if we back up to verse 18, we find out that the disciples weren't able to drive out this demon. That's very interesting. Why couldn't they drive out the demon? I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm going to let Jesus answer the question. And he does later. We'll get there in just a moment. But they couldn't drive it out. And then it's Jesus' turn right here. So Jesus is having this conversation with this man. And he actually says something pretty bold, really, about those people. In verse 19, he says, you unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? You know, we actually see Jesus making this statement several times. And, you know, when you think about Jesus being God in the flesh, coming to earth, living among us, I mean, he is so high above us, so, so much greater than us in like any and every way that you can possibly think of. He had to have a lot of moments when he was just like, how long do I have to just keep putting up with these people? You know, how long are they still not going to understand? And he says, you unbelieving generation. He's just, he's longing for them to understand. And they're not getting it. And they're not growing as he, he really wants them to at this time. And I can't help but also think that this is how he feels about us many times too. That many times we don't step up and grow like we're supposed to. And he might be wondering, you know, how long do I have to keep putting up with, with so-and-so? You know, they're just not growing like they should be. I just wish they would just grow. I'm speaking from Jesus' perspective, of course. And, you know, what we see right here is, yeah, he still, he asked that question. How long do I have to put up with them? You know, how long do I, uh, do I have to stay with you? But we see that he always has compassion on these crowds, on his disciples. He has compassion on these people. And he still spends time with them, as much time as necessary. And he works with them. And he allows them to, to know more and more about what it takes to follow God. More and more about what it means to follow Christ. In this conversation, he wants more information about this, this spirit. And this, this way that the spirit has tormented uh, this child. Um, and then this, this conversation comes. That the boy's father, he says in verse 22, you know, if you can do anything, just take pity on us and help us. And Jesus kind of quotes that. He says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. He's saying that wonderful statement of faith. And isn't it great if we have that type of faith, that we can really believe that everything is possible for one who believes. But then verse 24, we find out about this man's faith. And this once again gives us hope within our humanity. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This is an okay place to be at, that we can make the statement, look, I do believe, but just help me overcome my unbelief. Because we might find ourselves in that situation a lot, actually. We might find that we do have faith in God, we do believe, but then there's still these, these moments, there's these questions that we might have, and we just, we sometimes just need to pray and just say, help me overcome my unbelief. That's where this boy's father but let's see, does Jesus help him with his unbelief? 
verses 25 through 29 now. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit streaked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So why could the disciples not drive out this demon? Well, he says there's something special about this. And I don't mean special in a good way. I mean special in kind of peculiar. And I still don't mean peculiar in a good way. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bad thing, really, with the spirit. But Jesus says this kind can come out only by prayer. Apparently, there's different types of impure spirits. And maybe there's different tasks that we might be facing that require different levels of, of us, you know, being uh, being there and, and kind of spiritually fit, if you kind of want to use that image. And what he says right here is, you know, this kind can only come out by prayer. We've got to be the type of, of followers of Christ that are people of prayer, that we pray all the time, that we pray without ceasing. You know, it's not by mistake that the Bible tells us that. And here, that's what this impure spirit needed to be overcome, was this prayer, this type of relationship that Jesus has with the Father. And he asks us that, that we step up and that we have that same type of relationship with our Heavenly Father as well. But this chapter continues on. There's even more about how great our, our God is. And also kind of a little few confusing things, maybe, if you will, uh, about Jesus as well. Let's keep reading now. Verses 30 through 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. You see, the same type of thing. They don't understand, but they're afraid. Looks to us like Jesus is speaking plainly. I mean, he really is, but they don't get it. They're, they're looking for something different. And because they're looking for something different, they don't see what's right in front of their faces. But Jesus in this conversation continues on. Verses 33 through 37 now. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last, the servant of all. He took a little child uh, whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not, uh, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So his disciples were asking a question. You know, who's, who's the greatest among them? Surely we don't ever do that in our churches, do we? We don't ever ask questions like that and kind of have debates like that, do we? Eh, maybe we do. The disciples weren't above it. Maybe we aren't either. But what we need to see is, what does Jesus do to that question? They were arguing about who's the greatest. But Jesus says, look, if you want to be the greatest, you really have got to be, uh, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. You've got to be the servant of all. That's what he says in verse 35. He's teaching them a better way. And he uses the, the visual illustration of a little child. So he gets a, a little child from the audience, brings him down. And, you know, to us, we, we kind of 
we kind of think of children as, as being a, you know, very important. And I mean, they are. I'm not trying to take away that. I think that part of the reason why we, we think that children are so important is because of the part that Christianity has played in our own culture. And the part that Jesus' statements and how he raised up those who were really lowly. I mean, during the time of Jesus, a little child um, was not something very great. They were kind of the lowest of the low whenever it comes to, to people. Like, you know, you, um, they had kind of their own hierarchy and stuff. And I'm not trying to justify these things. I'm just saying, look, he, he literally picked a person from the audience that would have been considered the last person. And he says, look, you, you've got to welcome this person. And if you welcome this type of person, this little child in my name, then you're welcoming me. He's teaching them what it means that the first must be last and the last first, and that we must be a servant of all. That's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, all of them. And they still don't quite get it. Verses 38 through 41. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. So in this passage right here, now I guess we can kind of look at and, and think about um, who's on the inside and who's on the outside of our circle, so to speak. Because John says, look, we saw a, a teacher. We saw somebody driving out demons and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. See, John thought that in order for you to be a follower of Jesus, what you had to be doing is you had to be like physically right there following Jesus all the time. Well, that, that wouldn't fare too well for us, would it? We don't have Jesus right in our midst that we can follow him like you know physically speaking i mean we don't have that type of relationship with jesus we can't have that type of relationship with jesus and even during Jesus' own day there were apparently other disciples that were following jesus in a different way than always right there with him and literally following him around because this person who's driving out demons was doing it in the name of jesus and uh, and apparently you know was not being against jesus verse 39 says you know, look, if, if this person is doing a miracle in the name of Jesus, then he can't just immediately do something bad. You know, that, that, just, that just doesn't work. And of course, okay, if we're going to take this statement, yes, it's possible that somebody can do something good in the name of Jesus and then later on, you know, do something bad. That's not the type of statement Jesus is making right here. Jesus is just saying, look, if somebody's doing good in the name of Christ, then they're doing good in the name of Christ. And they're going to receive a reward for that. And we need to understand they don't always have to be just like, you know, one, one of our little circle in order to be okay. They do need to be a circle of, of those who Jesus welcomed, but who did Jesus welcome? And think about that. And I think that needs to, to impact us. You know, Jesus is the type of person who brought in a little child, someone who was lowest on the totem pole, so, so to speak, of society. And he says, look, you've got to welcome this type of person. You know, you've got to welcome this little child in my name. This is what Jesus is trying to teach them in so many different ways. And Jesus is still not even done because he's going to go into more details about that uh, in the, the remainder of this chapter. And I'm going to warn you before we get to the, the last few verses of this chapter is there's kind of some difficult things in this, this little bit. And there's also some things that um, I don't know if I completely understand. I mean, I kind of I, I get most of what Jesus is saying, but there are going to be some things that I'm just going to have to leave you with. 
and you know for for us i guess kind of together to be able to study these things out let's look at those things together verses 42 through 50. this is jesus speaking he says if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the sea if your hand causes you to stumble cut it off it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire does not go out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter a life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the, the worms that eat uh, them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So this passage and what Jesus is talking about, he's still saying the same types of things that he's been saying before. That look, we need to not only welcome little ones in the name of Jesus, but we need to make sure that we don't do anything at all that will cause them to stumble. This is what it means about the first being the last and the last being the first and, and us being a servant to those people that we need to make sure that, that everybody we view as, as someone that we can serve and that we can help. And we don't need to be doing harm to them at all. And then he also tells us about the seriousness of this. You know, look, it's better if you cut off whatever in this life might be causing you sin. And he's not talking, you know, literally cutting off your hand or cutting off your foot and stuff. He's just saying, look, whatever it is in your life that is causing you to sin, cut it out, get rid of it, because it's better if you enter in to life and life with God, if you enter in to the kingdom of God, uh, you know, with one eye or missing something or another, it, it's better if you just enter into the kingdom of God than to have all your limbs and, and everything intact and then to be thrown into hell. I mean, Jesus uses that statement several times right here. He's, he's really making some bold statements. And this image that's used there, it's, I mean, none of it is good in, in connection with hell. He's trying to tell them the seriousness of this. We need to take this very serious. We need to be people who will be servants. We, we don't need to, uh, to, to be the types of people who, um, you know, just we can say, oh, you know, how great I am. And, you know, look, I've got all my hands. I've got all my, my limbs, my feet, my eyes, everything. Not if those things are causing us to sin. If those things are causing us to sin. We need to literally you know, cut it out. Um, I guess not literally. That might have been the, the not the right way to say it. But I mean, whatever is causing us sin, that needs to be done away with. So we, we kind of see this seriousness right there. And, and it does point to um, how serious of a matter this is and how important it is for us to follow God, for us to follow Jesus. Now, kind of the, the weird stuff, the weird part that, that I don't know if I fully exactly understand some of this. And, and look, if you want to reach out to me, and, uh, you know, maybe kind of uh, give me a little bit more information uh, to go off of. In all honesty, what I've seen about this whole salt and fire and stuff like that, like verse 49, it talks about uh, everyone will be salted with fire. Kind of a weird image. But then he, he says in verse 50 that salt is good. And if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Um, that, that's an interesting phrase. And of course, we know that, you know, we're called to be uh, salt and we're called to be light and, and I think that there's you know some of that images that's being used there and, and salt can be used in, in many different ways and that's why I find it difficult to 
really zero in and, and figure out what Jesus was saying right here because salt has been used uh, in, in a few different ways. And so, you know, if you, if you want me to go into more detail about that, or maybe if you have something else to, to comment about that, uh, I'll try to include a, a, a little slide at the very end of this, uh, this video that will give you some ways that you can reach out to me and, and to be able to uh, maybe have a little bit more of a conversation uh, about this. And I might bring that up next class period, depending on if anyone you know, reaches out. But right here, it does talk about this salt in verses 49 and 50. So yeah, salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, then how can it be made salty again? And you know, when you look at this, something that is literally salt, as my understanding at least, if the salt is actually pure and if it's genuine, then there's no way for it to lose its saltiness. So, I mean, Jesus would have known that. So they, they understood, okay, well, if the salt is good and if the salt is, is truly pure, then it's not going to lose its saltiness. And maybe that's the way that Jesus is, is wanting us to take it. And he's wanting us to realize, look, if you are genuinely good, if you are genuinely following God, then you don't have to worry about losing your saltiness because it's gonna be there. Just like salt, you know, it's part of its nature. But then another way of, of kind of interpreting this, and another way that you know commentators and and uh, you know biblical scholars will kind of talk about this is uh, there was other types of salt, maybe impure salts that they would have been familiar with, and those impure salts, for one reason or another, they could lose their saltiness, and they could have been kind of you know exposed, and the chemical makeup would be different and everything. You know, obviously they would have they would have had a different way of communicating that, but. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. Maybe he literally is talking about salt that they had and that they could have used, um, but sometimes that salt could lose its saltiness. And what was it good for? It wasn't good for anything at that point. You know, it was, it was made completely worthless because the whole point of the salt is to retain its, its saltiness. It has to be salty in order for it to be salt. It, it, it's gotta have those things. So maybe Jesus is, is talking about uh, the need for us to, to keep that purity, to keep that salt. I guess kind of in some way, the two different uh, ideas about that and, and the two different ways of thinking about it, uh, maybe they kind of go in hand in hand a little bit better and the need for us to be pure. And perhaps that fits the, the description of what Jesus is talking about right here. You know, for us to get rid of anything that might cause us to stumble. But we need to be pure. We need to be pure among one another, with one another, the way that we treat each other. We need to make sure that we can live out these, these words that Jesus said, that we need to be the servant of all. That's the calling that Jesus has left, left us with. And there's still more in, in Mark's gospel that we will continue to, to find more and more about Jesus and what it means to follow him. But most certainly it means that we are called to be a servant of people around us. Let's make sure that we serve.